Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Ajo Way, a podcast presented by the faculty and trainees at the University of Arizona Internal Medicine Residency Program at South Campus. Each episode, we will delve into the evidence-based patient-centered practice of ambulatory medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Indu Partha, a board-certified general internist with a passion for primary care and medical education. I'm excited to get back to our conversation with Dr. Bradley Block, an otolaryngologist in New York. He was getting ready to teach us about Meniere's disease, vestibular neuronitis, and labyrinthitis, and I'm looking forward to um, getting you guys episode number two. Before we get into the podcast, I just want to thank you for your patience and in waiting for this. I'm sorry for the delay. Um, As many of you probably know, the podcast is very homegrown, and I'm very lucky to have a editor and producer close to home, uh, my 17-year-old son. He is in the midst of college applications um, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. So obviously we needed to get some time put in for that and the podcast slipped back a little bit, but thanks for your patience. So you had mentioned um, vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, um, Meniere's disease. Uh, I think all of those names, probably Meniere's is the one we might see or think of first. Can you tell us a little bit about vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis? What are we looking for? How is this different from BPPV and why should we be able to tell the difference? So vestibular neuritis is, um, and labyrinthitis are pretty similar. Okay. Sometimes it's called vestibular neuronitis. Sometimes it's neuritis um, and labyrinthitis. Basically labyrinthitis is vestibular neuritis with hearing loss. So if your patient has room spinning and hearing loss, it's labyrinthitis. If they just have room spinning, it's um, vestibular neuritis. And if it's just hearing loss, then it's sudden central hearing loss, which is uh, its own thing and for a lecture for a different a talk for a different day. But um, vestibular neuritis um, is it's thought to be a viral inf- inner ear infection, right? And it's I I think it's I think it might be. Th- thought to be due to an enterovirus, okay. which is interesting because so is acute flaccid myelitis, um, which is something that, that happens seasonally in kids, you know, where they'll just lose strength in, in one of their typically peripheral, but I think can be central, um, peripherally or, or, or centrally. So it's, so it's thought to be due to enterovirus. And what happens is they'll, it'll get in, the inner ear gets infected. And so what happens if it's stimulated and over-functioning, you'll get room spinning. Sure. But this room spinning for vestibular neuritis will last anywhere from hours to days. Okay. And so you can typically see the, um, the nystagmus. Um, and the ear is actually pulling your eyes in that direction. Okay. So you look towards the affected ear and then nystagmus extinguishes. Why? Because okay. the ear is pulling the eyes in that direction. Got you'll it. look away, you'll look in the other direction, and then you'll see this nystagmus. Okay. And that's when the patient will feel symptomatic. They'll get worse when they're looking away from, from the their... affected side. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is treated with uh, time. Okay. I mean, sometimes they need to be admitted because it's so horrible that they can't keep anything down, right? They, it's like they have to crawl on the floor to get to the bathroom. This is debilitating. 
yeah. this is debilitating. And a lot of times you'll just give them benzos to just get them through it. Because benzos, the benzodiazepines are vestibular suppressants. And you know what? Meclizine just ain't going to cut it because they are in rough, rough shape. Speaking of And then it's just over. That's like a, a popular choice for those of us in primary care clinics. Do you ever use it? When do you use it? Do you, is there a particular case you would or would not choose meclizine? Uh, Meniere's disease is the only time that I'll use it. Okay. So Meniere's disease. So you have an established diagnosis of Meniere's disease. Okay. And, um, um, and, uh, sorry, but back to the vestibularitis. We'll go. We'll go. We'll go to the meclizine in a second. But back to the yeah. vestibularitis. Like this is this is someone that should really be. Um, we don't do anything for them. I mean, we're happy to see them when it happens, so we can help you with the diagnosis. Sure. But you know, this is a patient that's frequently they come in through the ER since they're so debilitated. They'll get an MRI because this could be a brainstem CVA, right? right? So um, so they'll typically have had an MRI, there's no findings, and then you just have to keep them comfortable until it burns out. And, and after the vestibular neuritis resolves, they're left with vestibular weakness from anyway, from days to weeks to months. So okay. they feel off balance in a pretty, and it can be in a pretty terrible way. So a lot of times we'll send them for vestibular rehab. So basically they go to uh, physical therapy to challenge their balance system. So if you have someone that feels off balance and you're worried that, that, that they might have, they could have BPPV and they're just not experiencing the vertigo. Got that it. sometimes happens. You, you know, you want to haul pike these patients. Absolutely. And then, uh, and it could be, it could have been vestibular neuritis, but typically there's an event that they'll remember since it's so, um, such a debilitating thing. So they're left with this vestibular, uh, um, vestibular weakness. And the last thing you want to do for these patients is start meclizine. And the reason is we need their vestibular system to recover. Okay. And you're suppressing it by giving them meclizine. You don't want to give them a vestibular suppressant. You want to challenge their vestibular system. You want them active. You want them moving. You want them doing everything they can to get it to recover. So by prescribing meclizine to someone who feels off balance, um, you're delaying their recovery. So you definitely don't want to give meclizine in these patients. Okay. Okay. Well, that but, is good to know because I, I <laughs> am unfortunately thinking about the many uh, times we've told people don't do too much, don't challenge yourself, take your meclizine. Um, and I wonder if we've just been del delaying their recovery uh, by doing so. Well, it's, I mean, it's hard to, you know, you don't know what, it's, it's hard to go back. It's, you don't know what their diagnosis was, right? Like, right. like for me to, to say this, I'm saying it in these, like, you know, it's vestibular neuritis and yeah. their vertiginous episodes are gone. And then interestingly, a lot of times vestibular neuritis can cause BPPV. Okay. So they end up later having BPPV that they have to come back and get treated with a, with a, with a maneuver. And, and the Epley maneuver is actually just for the most common cause, the, the posterior canal. There's also, we, we sometimes will do a log roll. So what'll happen is you turn them to the left and sorry, we'll get back to, I keep on jumping around. I apologize for this. <laughs> I just get so excited about dizziness. They're so all, to say. all connected, so I get it. Um, so so um, it might be a lateral canal, BPPV, and what happens is you turn them to the left and they have vertigo and they have nystagmus. You turn them to the right, they have vertigo, they have nystagmus. But typically it's a horizontal nystagmus Okay. Um, that is stronger on one side than the other. Uh, and, and the way, and you'll do a log roll to these patients, not an Epley maneuver. 
So a log roll, you basically, you start them on, the si on their back, have them turn their head to the side. That's less affected, okay. less affected. Stay on that side for about a minute, turn over onto their belly for a minute, keep turning in the same direction. So now they're on the side that was worse before for a okay. minute and then have them on their back for a minute and then sit them back up. And you'll know it's working because when you get them to that worst side, they're feeling better already. Now they can lie on there. So let's say the left side was not quite so bad. The right side was really bad. Yeah. You have them turn to their left for a minute, turn to their belly for a minute, keep turning. Now they're on their right. And now when they're on the right side, it's not quite so bad. They're Got able to, to, to tolerate it. So and it might even be almost a, gone. A practical question. What kind of exam table do you have that they could fully yeah. roll all the way over? Is this something Ours, you tell them to do at home on their No, bed? no, 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 no. This is all supervised. Okay. This is all supervised. We sometimes have patients with recurrent BPPV. Right. Where it like happens over and over again. And eventually they just get to be able to, to epley themselves. Okay. So there is a role for... You know, I've seen YouTube videos of self epley yeah. maneuvers. So that yeah, but I think it really should be supervised. One because it's diagnostic, and two, it becomes you know diagnostic into therapeutic. Gotcha. Um, if you if you have a patient where you're like turning them onto their side and it's happening, and like you're confused and you don't know what to sit them up, send them to ENT. Okay. Because I've seen it happen where they've been in in a position like let's say that it was this log roll and you had them turn to the right and the right is the worst side and you keep them there, posterior canal BPPV tends to extinguish after a few seconds, maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute. But if you keep them um, with its lateral canal on this side, that's, that's really bad. You're really, really gonna fatigue their vestibular system and they could be debilitated for weeks. Oh, so wow. if you're not sure, but you've made the diagnosis, yeah. send them to ENT, you know, we'll, do, we'll do the maneuver. But if you do it incorrectly and it doesn't extinguish quickly, then you could cause some serious vestibular weakness that could be with the patient for a while. So if, if you're not sure, and they're like, they're, they're like, they're really dizzy. They're really uncomfortable. Their eyes are dancing all around. I'm not sure what direction to go with. I'm not sure what to sit them up, wait till they're feeling better okay. and, uh, and send them to us. And sometimes these patients can't drive themselves home. So, right. you know, before you do a therapeutic maneuver, you want to make sure that you give them the caveat that they shouldn't, they may not want to drive themselves home. Some people insist on having the, them chaperoned. Some people will put them in a C-collar afterwards, actually. Oh, although wow. the, the, the academy, just so they're not moving their neck so much. Although the uh, academy actually recommends against that, the academy guidelines. Okay. Um, so, so uh, and there have been lawsuits where people got into car accidents after being treated for BPPV. Got and it. Uh, so, so, you know, this is the variation in the ENT community and how, how we treat this. But uh, so, okay, we're, uh, Meclizine. I think we were, we were talking about Meclizine. Meclizine, Meniere's disease. I kind of am picturing the name Meniere with accent mark here, there, and everywhere. Why don't you uh, So, yeah, so one of the questions that. Uh, <laughs> that I had proposed to you that we should talk about was, who was Prosper Meniere? And why does he have so many accent marks on his name? And, you know, I think I'm funny and this is otolaryngology humor, but my, uh, my, and then the next question was, who was John Epley? And why does he not have any accent marks on his name? <laughs> right. Very, I'm very funny. Uh, so I, I read these to my wife because I was so proud of them. And 
uh, she, you know, she's not a physician. She did not think that they were so funny. Uh, and then she tried to tell me where the accent marks were on Meniere because she speaks French. Oh, so apparently if you speak French, you know where the accent marks go and what direction they go in. But yeah, so he was, he was a Frenchman who first, first described uh, what Meniere's disease and classically Meniere's disease is, is four symptoms happening simultaneously. So it's true vertigo. So room spinning. Okay. It's a sense of fullness, a roaring tinnitus, and a low frequency hearing loss. Okay. And one of my mentors once told me, if you're looking for all of them happening at the same time, you're never going to diagnose Meniere's. Okay. That's what was my going to be my next question. Do those all need to happen at once or can they happen in succession, um, really, you know, separated by time? So typically, no, they're not separated by time. They're either happening or they're not happening. Okay. Um, so if they're happening, they're happening together. Um, but, but they are, they are happening. They are happening together. You might not, the patient might not experience all three. And sometimes what happens is they'll start off just with a low frequency hearing loss. Okay. Intermittent low frequency hearing loss. And we treat that as sudden central hearing loss, which, which is its own thing. You know, we treat that with high dose steroids to try and get their hearing back. Uh, but when it's low frequency hearing loss, it might be endolymphatic high drops, which is what Meniere's disease is. So what's endolymphatic high drops? Well, it's ultimately too much pressure in your inner ear and the inner ear on, you know, cadaveric exam on, on imaging ends up being uh, dilated. Although they've found lots of people with endolymphatic high drops that never had Meniere's disease. Okay. So typically, and People with Meniere's have endolymphatic, endolymphatic high drops, but not everyone that has endolymphatic high drops will end up with Meniere's. Okay. We don't know why. We don't know why. So, um, and we don't know why we treat it the way we do. <laughs> we treat Meniere's disease sometimes with steroids. Why do we give them steroids? We don't know. What do they do? <laughs> we don't know. Um, so sometimes if it's causing a, a vertigo or a sudden loss, sometimes you'll put them on systemic steroids. Sometimes you'll put them on middle ear steroids. So you'll actually inject steroids through the tympanic membrane and oh. hope that it gets absorbed through the round window and the oval window. If they're having an attack, if they have sudden hearing loss, if, they, if they're having you know, vertigo while, they're, while, they're, while you're seeing them. So, um, and then we also put them on a potassium sparing diuretic. Uh, we'll put them on like triamterine. Okay. Um, and there's thought to be, you know, an a, a electrolyte imbalance in the endolymph that is leading to the high drops. So you're putting them on the diuretic. Uh, there's so much unknown about Meniere's disease. It's really hard to say. Um, but those, those are, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for these episodes and they generally last hours. They generally last hours. These episodes of vertigo, hearing loss. And the most common diagnosis to confuse it with would be a vestibular migraine. Okay. So vestibular migraines can give you, you know, episodes of true vertigo that last for hours, recurring episodes, kind of like many years, and frequently we'll treat them similarly. Like what's your dietary trigger that causes your migraine? What's your dietary trigger that causes your many years? Um, and, and you can give both of these patients meclizine for when they're having an episode. But really, these are the only patients that I'm giving meclizine to. Okay, fair enough. And, you know, you read, you go into up to date thinking, oh, does this patient have Meniere's? What should I lifestyle wise um, advise them? Um, have you found the low caffeine, low salt 
interventions make a difference? Is that just something to make us feel better that we're offering them some relief? Yeah, that's, uh, um, I think it was Voltaire that said something like, uh, the physician's job is to entertain the patient while nature takes its course. Um, so are we just entertaining the patient while nature takes its course? Well, uh, it's, it's really hard to say, but yeah, we do recommend low salt diet. Okay. Um, uh, for this, you know, similar reason that we're prescribing a potassium sparing diuretic. Um, and then caffeine. Yeah. You're really, you're recommending the no fun diet, right? Like no, <laughs> no salt, no alcohol, no caffeine, no fun. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. No, no nicotine. Uh, so, you know, and it helps to, for them to have a diary, um, to, to track when it happens, a food diary, cause they might have certain food triggers. Okay. Fair enough. Similar to migraines. Actually, some people also treat meniers like migraines. I was actually at a lecture a, a couple of years ago where they talked about giving patients, uh, Dolovent, which is a supplement for people with migraines that uh, I think it's B-complex, CoQ10 and magnesium, okay, which are preventative for migraines. And they, this you know, person had, was having success with, uh, with that, although clearly that's anecdotal. I, I don't know what the data is behind that. Got it. I mean, I can tell you personally, I am a migraine sufferer. I usually just get more of you know, your classical migraine, but um, about six, seven years ago, I was traveling, visiting my uh, family in New Jersey, um, had a migraine, did not have my medications with me, and it turned into the worst case of vertigo um, you could ever believe. Like I was, you know, lying in bed, not wanting to move at all. Um, and I that had is vertigo. It was that vertigo. Is vertigo. That's it was vertigo. Yes. Horrible. And yeah. I was supposed to fly back home the next day. And I just thought there's absolutely no way with my history of already getting motion sickness that I was getting on a plane with vertigo with three kids. Um, so I just waited it out. I mean, speaking to your time, will it was a horrible couple of days. Um, eventually went away, but I'm sorry, this podcast is turning out to be, <laughs> but this is what podcasts are all. This is why I, I have a podcast so I can get my questions answered. <laughs> I'm curious about certain things. And I, it, you know, a lot of times it turns into like a personal coaching session. I for was me. like, I feel like you're my therapist regarding yeah. my, um, motion sickness and the, the vertigo attack. I and have. your migraines. Yeah. And we had, you know, we had this primary care Twitter chat a little while ago. Right. Where we were talking about the difference between sinus headaches and and migraine sinus headaches and sinus infections, and this was another opportunity for you to go, hey, yeah, hey, wait a second, that's <laughs> yeah, just some stuff for me too. This is all very relating to my uh, to my personal life. So this might be a loaded question, but with um, BPV, BPPV. Um, vestibular neuronitis, labyrinthitis, Meniere's disease, at what point, you know, is a primary care provider supposed to say, you know what, I've sort of hit my end. Uh, I really should be sending my patient on to a specialist and having them get referred to you. Or do you think uh, if we're comfortable and knowledgeable, uh, we would be able to manage these patients on our own? Well, this is an opportunity for me to plug my practice. 
uh, ENT and Allergy Associates. We are the largest ENT practice in the country. Uh, we're in the New York metropolitan area. And uh, generally, if you're having trouble with a patient, we can get them in either the same day or the next day. So, uh, you know, have a low threshold if we're in the area, but I recognize that a lot of people listening to this are not in parts of the country that have such a high saturation of otolaryngologists. So you're gonna wanna try and manage it on, on your own. Well, I, I mean, I think, I don't know how to answer that because it really is what your comfort level is. I think, you know, it behooves you to diagnose the things, to, to not miss the things that are scary and dangerous. Sure. And ultimately, those are not the otologic causes, you know, short of someone getting in a car accident because they're, um, because they're dizzy. You know, the, none of these things are, are going to shorten the patient's life. Okay. Having. You know, it's ultimately quality of life. As you experience with your vertiginous migraine, it's a pretty miserable quality of life. But if you end up delaying diagnosis because you've been trying a couple things first, for the ENT stuff, it's, it's not ultimately going to be harmful to the patient, okay. right? You miss a brainstem stroke, you know, that's, that's a problem. So I think it's, it's just ultimately within your comfort level. I think personally, I think everyone who's dizzy maybe most people who are dizzy should at least get a hall pike okay. at least get a Dick's hall pike. And yeah, what kind of chairs do I have in my office? They're kind of like dental chairs. Okay. Like they yeah. lean all the way back. I can remove the headrest. So if I, so what I'll do is I'll lean the chair back with them sitting up, take the headrest off and then, you know, lean the back and turn them to the side. So, um, you know, I'm able to do that in my chair. I don't, I have, cause most of our stuff in otolaryngology is sitting up. Right. <laughs> we need to be able to lie them back for some procedures and for this, uh, but generally it's a it's a it's an exam chair. Right. But an exam chair not that an is an exam able table. To lie yeah. Our yeah, tables sometimes are shoved in the corner, so we don't have a ton of room, you know, on yeah. the back side of the bed. Yeah. How about the hearing loss portion? I guess that's where personally I always worry. If is there some way that I'm going to harm the patient by delaying them getting to an otolaryngologist regarding their hearing loss if they have um, Meniere's disease? Is there something you would be doing or I'm obviously any uh, steroid injections into the middle ear, I will not be doing that. But um, I think that's the bit that I always worry about that is there some delay in getting to ENT that I'm going to um, irreparably damage their hearing and lose that window of time. So with sudden hearing loss, which is um, where patients suddenly lose their hearing. Uh, the, the thought is the sooner that you treat it, the better. And we tend to treat it with high dose steroids or middle ear steroids, um, whether it's Meniere's related or not. Okay. Um, if they have sudden hearing loss, they get treated with, with high dose steroids. Um, if it's Meniere's related, it's probably, it's like I said, it's a low frequency hearing loss. This is where your tuning fork might come in handy. Okay. Because that's going to test the lower frequency. That's like 125. And 20, I don't know offhand what most tuning forks are, but, but I think, but they're definitely low frequency. So it's going to be pretty accurate when, when you have a high frequency hearing loss, then the, the tuning fork isn't that useful. Cause it is, again, it's a low, most tuning forks are, are low frequencies. Um, or even the higher frequency ones tend to be mid frequency. They're not like 4,000 Hertz, which is, you know, a higher frequency for understanding human speech. Um, Sorry, I got off track there a little bit. We're, we're, <laughs> so we're, just uh, oh, in so, terms of Meniere's oh, well, low losing, frequency. Yes, 
yeah, so, uh, so missing out on hearing loss. So one, you can test it yourself, right? With, with your tuning fork, you can see if they have some, some hearing loss. But yes, time is, is of the essence with getting them their hearing back. Okay. If someone has Meniere's disease in general, it tends to be a progressive disease. Uh, and then it also has a tendency to burn itself out. So, you know, they'll get, they'll, they'll have an attack. They'll lose some hearing. They'll get some of it back, most of it back or all of it back. But you get enough episodes and it's going to slowly wear away, whittle away at your hearing. Um, but you know, once you have many years, you have, should have a relationship with an otolaryngologist. And I think that time to diagnosis of many disease on average is like two to four years. Got it. Like frequently people will have these, you know, these nebulous sensations, these intermittent spells, you know, I've, I have patients that come in and their, their low frequency hearing loss has been attributed to eustachian tube dysfunction, to allergies. These people get allergy tested on allergy medicines. And finally, ultimately they end up you know, we can sometimes catch them while they're having an episode and then we can see the hearing loss. But until then, you know, oh, I get this intermittent earfulness. Well, that can be all sorts of stuff. But then, you know, when it combines with the vertigo, it gives us, it gives us a better picture. Um, in terms of the workup for this, you know, we can, sometimes people do VNGs, which is, you know, basically caloric testing to give them, we give them nystagmus. And then we measure their nystagmus and it, we can tell us if the inner ear is weak or not. Um, also, we, you know, you're going to track their eye movements in different positions. That's what the video nystagmography is. Um, you can get an ECOG, electrocochleography, which can tell you with poor, poor results whether or not the patient has Meniere's disease. It's not like if it's negative, they don't have Meniere's disease. And if it's positive, they do. The positive predictive value for, for that is terrible. Yet sometimes we get it because we're trying to build a case because we can't figure it out because it's hard. Is it Meniere's? Is it not? Is it vestibular migraine? Is it something else? It's just, this is hard. This is challenging. Dizziness is tough. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, the sooner, once someone has a hearing loss, the sooner they get to us, the better. But recognizing also that not everyone has great access to an otolaryngologist. No, definitely. And I, you were talking about workup and the VNG, et cetera. How about a role for um, MRI? When, in which situations might you send patients for MRI who are presenting with dizziness that you do think is otologic in nature? Is there a role for that? And what kind of uh, symptoms might put you off in that direction? So there is no role for an MRI in benign proxismal positional vertigo. Sure. Right? No role, right. period. You haul pike them, you get, the, you get the nystagmus, you epley them, you see them a week later, they're feeling better, their epley's now, or their haul pike is now negative. There is no role for an MRI. This is why I say every patient with dizziness should at least get a hall pike. Because again, also not everyone will describe their or experience it as true vertigo. Okay. So, you know, you would think I can, I can diagnose someone with BPPV because they're going to tell me that when they roll over, they were experienced room spinning for like 20 seconds and it happens over and over and it's always on the same side. And, you know, but uh, you know, one of those, what they tell us in med school, not everyone reads the book. Right. right. So not everyone is going to present this way. I've seen tons of patients, particularly older patients, that they just were kind of off balance and they had BPPV and they weren't experiencing the vertigo and you haul pike them and the, their balance can, can get better. Um, also, something with, with older patients that are just off balance, uh, there's 
rarely not going to be a role for vestibular rehab in someone who's, you know, they're just, they're older, they're dizzy, they're at risk for falls. Like, if you can't figure out a diagnosis, just send them to vestibular rehab because it's going it. to help. Um, so, but, but with Meniere's disease, yeah, I mean, th there's some debate among otolaryngologists about if someone has a diagnosis of Meniere's disease, if they need an MRI or not. Some people are going to say, you know, you're, you're going to miss some people with a um, vestibular schwannoma. I was going to say that seems like the one we're always looking for, and I'm not sure that we really know why we're trying to look for it. It seems like one of those internal medicine questions that we rarely yeah. ever find. But, you know, the more you look for them, the more you're going to find them. I sure. found them on patients that had asymmetric hearing loss. That's typically our indication for doing it. Gotcha. And they had their worst hearing was on the side without the tumor. So Fair you found it. It was on the other side. Like this is someone that never, you know, would have been been scanned yet. They, you know, for, for, for another reason, they're getting a scan. So um, yeah, vestibular schwannoma, you're typically going to present, not necessarily with vertigo, you're going to present with uh, asymmetric hearing loss. loss. Asymmetric hearing loss. Gotcha. Uh, but, but again, you know, that's what you're getting with Meniere's disease. You're getting asymmetric hearing loss. Right. So should they get an MRI? Some people say yes, if they have like, you know, classic Meniere's, do you need to get an MRI? It's, it's, it's up for debate. It's up to, it depends, it depends on the malpractice laws in your uh, state. No, just kidding. It's a, right. We shouldn't be thinking about that. We should be treating the patient in front of us, but right. There's a cost to MRIs. Right. Right. Like it's not just a financial cost, but you find these incidental lomas and you end up sending them down this rabbit hole of other findings. Right. We've all had those experiences. Sure. And you end up harming them by getting the MRI. Unfortunately, that wasn't didn't help you in working up their dizziness. So, you know, it's not so straightforward what the right thing to do is in that situation. No, I agree. I mean, I think that was sort of the, the reason behind um, having this conversation with you is I think really the chief complaint of I am dizzy is one of those um, complaints that we hear a lot in clinic or we are eliciting it through a thorough review of systems. And then we're almost asking the question, hoping they're going to say no. And when they say <laughs> yes, we find ourselves wondering, you know, now what are we supposed what to do? What did I do? Yeah. Like if you're reviewing, going over the review of systems and you're like, Okay, so a little weight gain, a little uh, uh, dizzy. Oh, yeah. Oh. And, <laughs> yeah. But we, we hear it all the time. So this has been really helpful, I think, in helping us feel a little bit more prepared from the non-cardiac, you know, uh, non-stroke type of origins of, um, of dizziness. So we've reviewed quite a lot, which has been great information. So wondering if there are maybe some major takeaways that you would like those of us in primary care to kind of keep in mind, we're faced with our patient who is telling us they have been dealing with dizziness. What are some of those, you really should know this um, points that you want to emphasize? So one is how the inner ear works. You know, the inner ear is responsible for giving the brain and the eyes information about rotational acceleration. And so if it's over-functioning, then you're going to feel the room spinning. And that is vertigo. Vertigo is not a diagnosis. It's a subjective sensation of room spinning. So 
if they're feeling room spinning, there's a good chance, doesn't mean that it, that it is, but there's a good chance that it could be from the inner ear. And if it's uh, vertigo that lasts for a few seconds, it might be BPPV. If it lasts for a few hours, it might be Meniere's disease or maybe vestibular neuritis. And if it lasts for hours to days, then it may be vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis if they're also complaining of, of hearing loss. So, you know, there aren't that many otologic diagnoses of dizziness, right? We've got a couple. One that we didn't mention was mal de barquement, which is just, I think in, I'm butchering the French. <laughs> we should is, have called your wife on board. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's no, there's no bon debarquement. So I think it means like mal is bad, right? Debarquement is getting off the boat or disembarking, right? Yeah. So basically you feel like you're, you're, you're still moving after you've stopped moving. And, and it, you know, we all get sea legs after we get off a cruise, but this can last a long time. And Got it. Unfortunately, there's no answer for that. The answer is to stop going on cruises, which <laughs> in the advent of coronavirus, I think we should all stop going on cruises. But okay. So, so yes, yeah, so you've got these, the major, the major diagnoses are BPVV, Meniere's disease, and vestibular neuritis slash labyrinthitis. Um, and you're really looking for a room spinning sensation or, or if they're experiencing inner ear weakness, then when they're turning their head and therefore challenging the vestibular system, it is a um, disorienting sensation. So they'll tell you like, when I'm sitting still, I'm fine. But when I turn my head or when I'm walking or when I'm moving, then I'm, um, then I'm feeling off balance. Although typically there's some insult to the inner ear. So either it's because Meniere's disease that their inner ear isn't working so well or because vestibular neuritis or because labyrinthitis or because BPPV that they're feeling this inner ear weakness. So typically it doesn't happen de novo. It's because of some vertiginous episode or episodes that have made it weak. Got it. And then the role for meclizine is for an acute episode of vertigo, either from a vestibular migraine or from Meniere's disease or from vestibular neuritis, but definitely not for BPPV because by the time they take their pill, their episode of BPV that lasted a few seconds has long since resolved. And so, you know, if they're experiencing vestibular weakness and you're giving them a vestibular suppressant, it's counterproductive. You want their vestibular system to recover and you want to challenge it. That is uh, a really great, great, very to the point take home messages that I think um, really will come into good play for all of us uh, seeing patients um, in the clinic, in the office space, um, and working with our um, colleagues in, do you prefer otolaryngology or ENT? Is there a preferred uh, way to be referred to? No, I, I think it's, I mean, technically the name of our specialty is otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, which is just a huge mouthful. Uh, and the head and neck surgery is where we overlap with our general surgery colleagues, right? Like neck right. dissections and laryngectomies and thyroidectomies, parathyroidectomies, parotids. So it's not just ear, nose, and throat. It's it's otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. So Got it. Um, you definitely shouldn't refer to us as that, as that's okay. too much. But I think ENT is is better because the patients know who they're seeing you tell them they're going to see an otolaryngologist for whatever reason they know what an ophthalmologist is they know what an orthopedist is but they don't know what an otolaryngologist is it's not just part of the vernacular so i think ent is preferable so they know who they're going to see 
Yeah, I, I would agree. It's a little overwhelming uh, a name and a tongue twister. So, but I definitely didn't want to shortchange all your <laughs> training and skills by referring to you as as our local ENT specialty colleague. <laughs> but it has been amazing talking with you. I've learned a lot. Um, I feel like I've seen my therapist uh, talking to you about my uh, migraine and vertigo problems um, and really appreciate you bringing your expertise um, to the podcast today. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining Dr. Block and uh, me today. Definitely go and check out his podcast, The Physician's Guide to uh, Doctoring which um, like the Aho way, you can find, I'm sure, on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And over here at the Aho way, we'd greatly appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast and leave a review so other those others can uh, find us as well. We'd love it if you would share our podcast with a friend and colleague. Uh, we look forward to you joining us next time here on the Aho way, where primary care is primary. Thank you so very much. This podcast episode was produced by Ajay Parker.